from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, can employees and job seekers push companies to speak out on climate change? What's in store for Loop? How brands can save recycling? And five hot technologies for cold trucking. We're just chilling this week on 350. It's February 28th, 2020, the end of February, pretty much. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. And joining me as always from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. We actually have one more day this year of February than usual. I so, didn't know that. That's yes, what I said. It's pretty much over. I actually yeah. know someone that has a birthday. Really? Yeah, on the 29th. So is yeah. he or she or she is really only 15? I suppose, yeah. yeah. Actually, really only 15 because they're younger. <laughs> but, uh, oh, okay. So maybe only yeah, four. Yeah, but hey, think yeah. about it. You get like, you could choose to have two birthdays or one birthday or a rotating birthday or whatever. But yeah, there you or go. Or if you get to a certain age, you can skip the whole damn thing altogether. Or you could skip together. your birthdays. That could Every be an four advantage. Years. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, welcome back. Uh, how was your vacation? It was delightful. It was uh, we were in Cabo San Lucas, uh, the southern tip of Baja California, just enjoying a little sun and surf and rest and relaxation and food and fun and, and hmm, other, maybe know. a birthday. <laughs> Happy oh, birthday, yeah, yeah, belated yeah, birthday, yeah. Joel. Yeah. Speaking of uh, ignoring <laughs> things and moving on, yeah, <laughs> I, I had one of them. And uh, it was it was it was delightful. Um, so yeah, that was great. Um, good to be back. Although um, lots and lots of travel over the month of March. Um, way too many uh, carbon emissions for my taste. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> could take always, the train. Can I take the train? Not to not from California to Kingsport, Tennessee, or Gainesville, sure you Florida. Could. It would just take long. That's yeah, I have to leave now. Mm -hmm. Basically, to get there in ten days. Um, yeah, I got that and I got Seattle and LA twice. And so it's just, it's just a, a lot of running around, mm -hmm. but it's always good stuff. Wait, so, why um, are you going to Kingport? Kingsport? Um, I'm going to be, uh, uh, it's a reporting trip actually, Ooh, Heather. Joel. Oh, I'm very uh, happy to hear that. I am going to be looking at a state-of-the-art plastics recycling hmm. and innovative, none like it in the world, I'm told, uh, plastics recycling plant run by uh, Eastman uh, from Eastman Chemical Company, as they, I think were once called. So I spent a day there and uh, with, be there with the CEO for lunch and uh, see the process and uh, yeah, do that. And I'm on my way to Gainesville, Florida for a sort of a day-long residency at the University of Florida. They've got about 12 meetings and, a, and an evening um, public event that I'll be keynoting going on there uh, later that week. So I thought I'd slip in the Tennessee thing because, you know, how often do you – it's not usually on the on the flight. And even going to, to Gainesville, it's no small thing to get to Kingsport, no. Tennessee. But um, hmm. it, I'm looking, really, really looking forward to, to seeing that. Well, it has. <laughs> well, so yeah, and and actually, since you just brought up recycling, I will bring up that 
today for our listeners that today is the rate expire, the early rate, I believe we call it now, for Circularity 20. Coming up in May, right? I'm going to do a little uh, PR for that. So get on there if you haven't already registered. Um, and also a big week for us, um, our, we launched our 30 Under 30 uh, nominations search. And uh, I'm thrilled to say we had like 10 or so within like the first eight hours of it going live. So I haven't peaked today, but uh, I'm really, really excited that uh, we have some wonderful uh, suggestions already for young professionals in the corporate sustainability field that deserve our collective attention. And what if I have someone I want to nominate or what if I want to nominate myself? Not that I qualify age-wise, but theoretically, what do I do, Heather? What do you do? Well, I'm so glad you asked, Joel. I can't remember the the URL right this second, but it will <laughs> well, be you're in, no help. It will, will be in the the uh, run list for the for the uh, podcast this week and actually for subsequent weeks. It is on our website. You can see the call for nominations. Also, we've been tweeting like mad about it. Or you can, heck, you can even just email me directly at Heather at GreenBiz and I'll get you all set up. And if you want to uh, see what uh, last year's looked like, just go to greenbiz.com slash 30 under 30 and it'll take you to the 2019 uh, edition and you can see uh, the kinds of people we've been uh, honoring and maybe you'll be inspired to to think of some young professional, or as I said, maybe yourself, um, the only real criterion is they have to be under 30. They're under 30 still on June. I think it's 22nd. June 22nd. Yeah, June 22nd of this year. Our anniversary week, too, for Green Biz, right? Oh my God. Yeah. This is the uh, the 20th anniversary of of the website, greenbiz.com. And all kinds of things happening this spring. Earth Day 50 and, and uh, oh, The Green Consumer, the book that I did, it, it came out uh, 30 years ago uh, this month or next. I don't remember. Um, so uh, lots of anniversaries that we'll be at least noting, if not uh, sort of revisiting. Um, but let's, meanwhile, speaking of revisiting, let's go to the Week in Review. Well, Heather, let's start with a topic that has just been fascinating me, which is Loop, this company that launched, uh, I guess, a little over a year ago by TerraCycle uh, out in your way in Trenton, New Jersey, working with brands to create this reuse cycle and these uh, durable packages that you can uh, basically take in the milkman model where you leave the empties and get a refill and and um, you wrote about it and, and sort of an update, but also you are a customer because it's available <laughs> in the tri-state area. So um, I'd love to hear a firsthand experience of what uh, Loop is like in the Heather Clancy household. In the Heather Clancy household. Well, so it's it's been a challenge actually for me because I, I am a two-person household and one of the first things that I've been that I would say about the loop model is that the totes are huge, right? So when you do when you place an order, uh, these things come and I, I the measurements are quite substantial. Um, they 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 take up a lot of room in your closet or in on your cabinet or so forth. And so for me, it's been a challenge uh, to, for two things. Number one is to to 
figure out when to return. I've actually only returned two loop totes filled with the empties in the period of eight months that I've been using this. I signed up right away. So let's let's just stop there for a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, They give you a tote and it's sort of like your third or fourth bin after your trash and your recycling bin. Now you have this reuse bin in the form of the loop branded tote that they, I guess you get as part of your signing up. And so when you finish uh, whatever you've bought, a shampoo or, or detergent or whatever it is, uh, you you basically throw the empty in that tote, and then at some point you decide to they they pick it up, or do you return bring it somewhere? How does that work? Well, so that's so, and let me just say that the size right now is 19 inches by 16 and a half inches by 16 inches. So this is a big thing, right? Again, so like it takes up space in your household. So what happens? You you empty a thing and you put it in the the tote. And for me, I felt frankly, I was like. I'm not going to return this tote with one item in it. It was taking me a long time. I bought some sort of staples that took a while to 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 use up. So laundry detergent. And when it's concentrated, it, for me, it could take a couple of months. Uh, dishwasher detergent, which is another item on there, those tablets. The, the container is so large, which is super. But again, months and months and months. It, you know, I think it contains 52. And if you wash your dishes once a week, that's a year. So for me... When I was staring at this tote that had maybe four empty containers in it, I thought, I can, there's no way I can call UPS. I'm not going to have a truck burning fuel coming to my house to pick up like an almost empty package. So I ended up putting it in my car and on other errands, I dropped it off um, when, I, when I got it to a somewhat... <laughs> And where did you drop it off? At a UPS place. Uh, so they do take... I mean, that is one good thing, right? So... You can bring it to locate right now. You can bring it to a, like a UPS location, and they'll ship it back out to you. It has a return label on it, so that you don't have to pay for. You, I mean, you're, you obviously are paying for the ship the postage at some point, but you put it in. You put it in the UPS um, uh, location, and they take it away. Now, which actually one of the things, as I did some reporting on this, so this particular story isn't just all about me. It's it's what's going on with the brands and with the the distribution partners because the retailers are what's really important here, right? So number one, I don't know, I don't know if you realize this, Joel, but the one that the person that the people that developed the site, the e-commerce site, were not the Loop people really. It was their partners, like the Walgreens and the and the Krogers of this world. They're the ones helping with all the merchandising, helping set the pricing, understanding the inventory uh, concerns. They have they have the systems to do that. And so Loop is partnering with retailers in all of the different markets it's it's entering. So it's in my my the New Jer- Jersey area now, but also like ten other states, I believe, um, and Paris, of course. But it's it's going to be going live in places like. Uh, the UK next month, actually, March. It's got Germany on the list and Tokyo and Australia. And the thing that's really interesting to me about, especially uh, Tokyo, is that they, in that market, they're going to launch uh, uh, in a situation where you can order it and someone, maybe you can get the shipment shipped to your house. But as you empty the containers, you can drop them off in a store. Um, and that, to me, is a really important link here. Um, later this year in the United States, Kroger and Walgreen, which have partnered in the U.S. with, with Loop, are going to be taking the containers back in store. And for me, that's a big, a, that will be a big tipping point for this because a lot of people that I've talked to that, that, have, that have used Loop are, are kind of frustrated by that. Like as, 
you know, to be quite honest, there's a lot of sort of eco-minded people um, that, that are buying because they want to try out this model. But I get really turned off by the whole emissions thing of the transportation part of it. And, and I'm not the only person. So having a place where you can drop it off and not have the things in your house and um, they can they can get back into the system more quickly, right? Because those containers aren't going doing anyone any good if they're sitting in my cabinet. Um, you know, that's going to be a very big, important milestone for them. So when you step back uh, and look at it, are you, does this feel like a, a, a potentially disruptive, revolutionary, if you want, uh, process and service, or, or is it just more incremental? Or when you think about uh, your experience, when you think about the opportunity to scale this uh, to your not only your friends and neighbors, but also obviously uh, across the U.S. and globally, um, how does it feel? Does it feel like something like you're in the part of a part of something really new and 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 potentially transformational, or does it feel like an, a, a, sort of a nice to do service? No, I feel I do feel it could be potentially transformational, but I don't feel like it's happening quickly enough, and that's why I really want these stores to take to to get in there because. When those, when these other markets come online, the other thing that needs to happen is the mix of the products has to change. Right now, you know, I'm, I, I have, I have a position of privilege. I, I have some disposable income. You have to have a little bit of disposable income to, to handle this right now. Because you're and putting a deposit you have to put on deposits these deposits yeah. down. The brand, the the brand, the the prices themselves aren't ridiculous. Like they aren't hugely over, uh, you know, an in store price yeah but it, the, the deposits are definitely a turnoff i mean like four dollars here five the fit the tote itself has a deposit it's fifteen dollars that's a lot of money so you've got maybe thirty dollars sunk into this so far that you're at any given point yeah, yeah. i have like a balance of forty dollars you know when you have a tote at your house you have something you have money sitting out you're lending loop your money i suppose you're so for me, the uh, model that I really have been fascinated by was is the uh, uh, company called Algramo. I wrote about them last year, and they are using reusable containers to distribute products in, in, in the case, and they're in, they're in South America right now, and they allow people to sort of fill them by, allegramo means by the gram, so as much as they want to. The containers that Loop sends are pretty, you know, it's pretty substantial. You're buying in bulk. If you can't buy, if you don't have the disposable income to buy in bulk, that's not going to work for you. But if you can take this container in, potentially get it filled to what you can afford that week or for that month, and you can create a service model that's a little bit different or subscribe potentially and have refills coming, that to me is really interesting. And, and so when we get into that, when we get into the refill part, when the stores get into place, then this could be really, really disruptive. Right now, it's a little too, um, Ill, frankly, and I, I, I don't mean this in any really bad way, but it's a pretty elite group of people. That, that are part of it, and it needs to get beyond that. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks for trying uh, that out and letting us know how it goes. And speaking of cool, that brings up another story that we want. I want to talk about this week, which is from uh, our own transportation guru, Katie Fehrenbacher, who wrote about uh, five hot technologies for cold trucking. Now, a little bit of context there, refrigeration in trucking and refrigeration in general, whether it's uh, air conditioning or uh, restaurant and, and cold storage for uh, foods or, or medicines or, or anything else, uh, are turned out to be a huge climate impact. In fact, uh, Drawdown, the uh, 
the project that is looking at how do you literally remove carbon from the atmosphere and what are the technologies and techniques you can do to not just avoid but actually remove some carbon, uh, listed refrigeration as the number one potential technology, refrigerant management. We replace the, the CFCs and HCFCs and, and, and now there's something called HFCs, which are uh, the primary replacement, which spare the ozone layer, which was the original intent, but they have up to 9,000 times greater capacity to uh, what's called global warming potential. So figuring out how to uh, someday replace that, but in the meantime, keep those refrigerants out of the atmosphere is, is a big thing. So along comes Katie and writes about uh, five technologies for what she calls cold trucking, basically refrigerated trucks. Pretty interesting stuff and frankly, uh, really heartening to see that so many solutions are, are upon us. Yes, there's a little bit. Of, I love the there's a there's something called reefer management systems, and this is not wait, reefer wait, madness. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Okay, you got my attention there for a second. Go on. <laughs> yeah, smarter reefers. Uh, so that was one of the technologies that that caught my attention. I've got all your attention too, by the way. Um, but but reefers um, refrigeration refrigerated trucks is a slang. Yeah, yeah, that's what they call these things, which I didn't know. It's oh, a I do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't. Um, but you know, turning these into uh, you know, and this this harkens back to this that warehouse um, situation I wrote about, right? Where this 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 big warehousing company is is managing the energy in their warehouses. Um, it when they don't need to keep it as cold because the you know because it's at the right temperature they can turn the the energy off and so they're the, the same idea applies to these trucks you can use things like um, machine learning to understand the weather conditions and how cold does the does the truck need to be and where are you in the world San Diego you know <laughs> Carmen San Diego like are you in Wisconsin where it's colder and it doesn't have to be running quite as much um, versus Florida where where the truck you know is passing through so that was one thing I didn't even, I really didn't ever think about but just the fact that you could really help these vehicles be connected and and also of course reducing fuel. Um, the other technology that I that really intrigued me in her piece is this liquid nitrogen technology from a company called Deerman. It's in a British one. And they've created this engine that uses liquid nit nitrogen. So it's for the the cool to keep the trailer cool but because of the the qualities of the of of this particular substance, it expands as it warms, and that can actually generate power. So the the liquid nitrogen is both cooling the load that's in there um, as well as powering the trailer. So it's kind of like this um, virtuous cycle, if you will, of of of, uh, of technology innovation. Yeah, uh, really interesting stuff, and and um, you know. Some of it just seems makes so much sense, like putting solar on the top of a trailer, which is something that one company is doing. Um, and um, you know, that's the the trailer is the big the back part of the truck that holds all the stuff, and it's this flat roof. And why not cover it with solar and use that to help power the truck, particularly uh, when it's when overnight when uh, it's parked and uh, the truck driver is is presumably sleeping in the truck, and there's. Uh, you know, air conditioning and uh, maybe re they get a little apartment and they're basically uh, heating your TVs or or any number of other things that they do and the, they need electricity for. And in the past, they've just idled. 
um, and kept the engine running. And now there's a number of things. And of course, this has been going on in the shipping industry, the ocean going shipping industry is called cold ironing, where boats, when they get to port, used to idle there too, with this spewing all this really toxic, harmful smoke from their from their smokestacks and now they're plugged in it's called cold ironing so just the more we can electrify this stuff instead of doing it out of internal combustion engines obviously uh, huge opportunities to reduce emissions pollution and, and improve public health so um yeah uh, check this out five hot technologies uh for mm-hmm. uh, cold trucking so one more story joel and it's your story. <laughs> oh, you make it sound so dramatic. Like, I, it is am, dramatic I, am I being called actually, to the principal's no, office here? Now? Okay, what's going on? No, but all, in all seriousness, first of all, I love it when you go reporting because we get great stories like this. But this is an initiative. Uh, you wrote about an initiative this week called Climate Voice. And this is something that one of our wonderful collaborators in, in, in climate uh, scheming, Bill Weil, who used to lead Facebook's sustainability team? Is this a ba- this is a his brainchild, essentially a an initiative to get companies really talking about climate policy in the United States. So and having a voice in that. Tell me a little bit about uh, the journey here, because I know you've been talking to him about this for quite a while. Yeah, I've, I've been talking about this particular idea for a couple of years. I've known Bill for about 15, back when he was uh, first started at Google as their energy czar. Well, so basically taking a page from the LGBTQ movement, uh, where uh, students, uh, employees, and others pressed companies to boycott U.S. states with laws that discriminated against lesbian, gay, trans, and other individuals based on their sexual preference. And you may recall there was a bathroom bill in North Carolina, for example. There was another one in Indiana. Uh, I remember the North Carolina one in particular because uh, there was a lot going on in Charlotte and different companies had events there or offices or were thinking of setting up data centers. Uh, the NCAA, I believe, had a championship game out of Charlotte, which ended up being moved because of this boycott of the state. And the idea that Bill had here is how do you leverage that kind of, uh, of movement in other words, getting companies, pressing companies to take a stand and then speak out on policy issues, um, leveraging their employees. And we, we've, we've written about uh, Dion Anderson, our associate editor, had a piece this week from the State of Green Business report about the rise of employee activism around climate change in particular inside companies. How do you leverage that? And then how do you leverage the next generation, the college students who are now or are about to be uh, visiting with those recruiters when they come to campus or interviewing for jobs and just looking around for, you know, who would I want to work for? How do you mobilize them to say, you know what, I don't want to work for for companies that uh, aren't doing the right thing. And, and so the other part of this is that if you if you think about climate activism on the part of companies, in other words, companies actually speaking out, it's kind of a, the typical bell curve. In fact, it's a classic bell curve, which is there's a few companies on one end that have been vocal, that have have been on Capitol Hill and state legislatures advocating for for uh, carbon pricing and renewable energy, enabling uh, legislation and, and regulations. And then at the other end of the bell curve, there's companies, particularly in the fossil fuel industry, who've been saying, nothing to see here. Let's, you know, we don't need to change anything. We don't want to crash the economy. All the different arguments that everybody is pretty familiar with these days around why we don't need climate action. And then in the big fat middle, 
is everybody else just sitting there kind of silently and saying, you know what, in the in the top the list of the top five policy issues we're dealing with, eh, climate's kind of number seven. And it never rises to the fact or, you know, nobody wants to be a target or the subject of certain tweets or any number of things. And so companies have been just sitting on the sidelines. Well, Climate Voice and, and Bill Weil in particular have are now saying, you know, silence is complicity. It's no longer acceptable. And we're going to gr- get a group of, of uh, again, uh, employees and students to, to take a pledge um, around uh, saying, I'm all in. I want to only work with companies that are all in. And I'm going to uh, uh, act than that and, and vote with my feet in terms of jobs and uh, job interviews at job fairs and, you know, and so trying to turn them into activists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually think that that's, you said the word activist. And I, I think that's one of the points that I appreciate from, from what they're trying to do is activism doesn't mean you have to go out and like scream in the streets and have signs and stuff like that. I mean, sure. That's one form of activism, but the other form that is really at, at, at play here is the policy and getting involved in making sure that the right clean energy jobs programs, uh, initiatives that support electrified transportation, that those measures are in place in, in your state, in your local government. I mean, I think we, it's pretty clear that that's where the action is. Um, and so it needs to be at the local level and, and getting involved in understanding the different legislative processes of your local jurisdiction is so important. That's number one. And that, so that's a, a form of activism, if you think about it it's, it's, at this point. And I think one of the other things that, you know, to play devil's advocate for a moment here, I think the other reason that, that companies have sat out not, is not just because they're afraid or they're showing cowardice or they're complete, you know, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they couldn't be bothered. I think it's because they're, they're sort of like, nothing looks perfect. Right. So <laughs> there's something, there's some trade-off in, in, in many of these bills and so forth that are winding their way through different jurisdictions. But when you look at the, the bigger picture, it, it doesn't matter if it's perfect, if it's better then that's what you should be pushing for. So, you know, it's the whole, the perfect is often the enemy of the good. And we're at the point where we just need progress on different things. And so I think people have been a little bit um, paralyzed, paralyzed by by the quest for perfection, potentially. I mean, too many Ps in that sentence. But yeah, I mean, seriously, I think that um, people think of activism as just the yelling and screaming kind. And I think there's a lot more types that, yeah. that really should be appreciated. And and uh, Climate Voice is starting off with three specific initiatives, one in Virginia, the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which mandates 100% renewable power and a number of other things around green jobs and, and low-income rate payers and things like that. And then there's, uh, there's law in uh, – uh, another one in Illinois, a Clean Energy Jobs Act, and then a uh, something called the Transportation and Climate Initiative, a regional effort aimed at transportation emissions in 13 Northeast and Mid-Atlantic U.S. states. So lots going on there. Uh, I, I want to play a little clip, just a two-minute clip of just so you can get a sense of Bill and and what he's trying to do here. Sort of asked him to talk about you know what's the theory of change here and how is this really going to make a difference. Here's what he had to say. We are going to make clear to companies how much young people care. And so we're going to recruit lots of students and hopefully at least a few employees at each of a bunch of companies. 
the employees to, to push that message from the inside, the students from the outside, through petitions, through letter writing, through demonstrations potentially at their headquarters or their offices, through media attention, to make clear that you know, young people are saying, we're done talking, we're done sitting around. You know, I mean, Greta has said this many times, uh, you know, a lot of talk, not a lot of action. Here's an opportunity in Virginia for some real action that is aligned with what the science says we need. And it's time for companies that say they believe in the science to actually step up and help make these things happen, even if they're not perfect. And that doesn't mean they should sign up and support anything, even if they hate it. If they have good reason not to, fine. But today, they mostly just stay away because they find some small flaw. Um, how are we going to get a lot of people to do it? Well, so we need to run a campaign to raise awareness. And we are talking to lots of organizations like Net Impact, like, like the Sierra Club, like Sunrise, like 350. Um, to get the word out to their members and hopefully engage many of their members in taking our pledge and signing our petitions. And we are recruiting ambassadors, if you will, on campuses who will actively recruit at their universities. Um, and we're going to you know, push on social media and get people to spread the word through social media. And hopefully, you know, maybe this will be one of those things that just goes viral. I know most things don't go viral. They, they are pushed, but we're going we're gonna to push things out to really try to get a lot of visibility among young people. This week, I hosted a webcast on what would it take for brands to fix recycling? And we had a really interesting conversation on that topic, very robust, with Ewan Murray, who's the chief executive officer of the Sustainability Consortium, and Paya Baker, who's the group manager of sustainability at Nestle Waters North America. Really interesting, as I said, uh, looking at, you know, how do brands in particular weigh in on this. And the Sustainability Consortium is a, a group of brands. So we're talking about that. But I was sort of fascinated with, with Nestle Water. And, you know, whatever you think of bottled water, um, and it's obviously a, a contentious issue for many, uh, it's assuming that it's, it's, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, what do we do about all that plastic? And I wanted to play you a little bit of a clip from the webcast, and you can go and watch the whole thing if you want. Uh, if you go to the webcast page on GreenBiz, you'll find the archive of the event. So here's Paya Baker from Nessie Water. Their biggest brand is Poland Springs, uh, which is mostly distributed in the Northeast U.S., but it's actually the largest bottled water brand in the United States. And talk a little bit about what they're doing at Poland Springs to spur consumers to recycle more. So we decided, as we thought about the corporate commitments that we had as a company, as Nestle Waters, again, we wanted to really bring these to life through our brands. We knew that's where we would have power to really connect with consumers. So we prioritized the Poland Spring brand, and we made a pretty big commitment last June where we announced really kind of leading our category that we were going to convert our whole brand to 100% recycled plastic by 2022. And it's definitely a heavy lift. Um, it's a big impact to our supply chain, procurement, you know, finding all of that high-quality food-grade recycled plastic. 
but we did a lot of prep work and felt confident we could make it happen. Uh, and we wanted to start right away. So when we made the announcement, we did start converting uh, several of our bottle sizes to 100% recycled plastic. So we wanted to make sure consumers knew we were taking this seriously and we were getting started right away. So that was the first step, was actually taking action and committing to recycled plastic, to use less new plastic and replace that with recycled plastic. But when we go, when we made the commitment about recycled plastic, it was really important that we also talk about recycling because as all of you guys on the phone probably know, in order to use recycled plastic, we need to have a supply of recycled PET coming into us. And as I said early on, only three out of 10 plastic bottles are recycled in the US today. So um, there's a very limited amount of food grade recycled plastic we could use. And so as part of this commitment and campaign, we needed to talk to consumers, have a brand-led conversation about recycling. We need to raise awareness of our low recycling rates, and we needed to get consumers to actually participate with us. So we launched a campaign. There were three components. I'll go through it quickly. Um, the first was creating a video and creative assets and putting some media dollars behind it. Um, you know, as we developed this key video, uh, we did a lot of consumer research and had some iterations and, and learned a lot. And the first one was, you know, and I think Ewan was kind of saying that it's a little tricky with consumers. Um, consumers don't want to feel that this entire burden of this problem is on them. That makes them very defensive and will actually shut them down. Uh, and they're right. There needs to be a lot of other players participating in this. So in order to invite engagement and participation, we really had to find a way to walk the line to encourage people to come with us but not make them feel defensive. But what we found is this statistic of three out of 10 plastic bottles are recycled really was a wake-up call. It was something that was motivating. It was surprising. I don't think most people knew that. A lot of people feel like they are doing their part recycling their bottles. And so that really low rate, the fact that 70% of plastic bottles are not making it back into a recycled format was upsetting to them. And so we really found that nugget, that statistic helped us. The second piece of the campaign was we had um, a partnership with the Recycling Partnership, which is a leading NGO focused on recycling access and education. Um, and we decided to kind of address the confusion that exists for consumers. There is a ton of confusion about what can and cannot be recycled. And we tapped into the power of social media, and we launched the first Instagram recycling hotline, and we called it hashtag not trash. And we invited consumers from all over, anything they were confused about, we said, go ahead, post a photo of it, um, use hashtag not trash, and tag Poland Spring Water, and we will work with the recycling partner to get you an answer. So it was trying to take kind of a new and creative approach to myth-busting and getting information to consumers on a platform they were already comfortable in using. And then the last piece was adding recycling information to our labels, which was really important. Um, so we added messaging both, both about the fact that there's recycled content in the bottle now and, again, just sharing insights that we've learned along the way. There is a lot of confusion as well over the difference between recycled and recyclable. And so anytime we tested out language and talked to people, um, they easily got those two things confused. So one of the things we realized we needed to do was make sure we were always using those two words together so that it was clear to consumers that this bottle was 100% recycled and it was also 100% recyclable, um, just to kind of clarify that those are different things. Um, and we added a QR code onto all of our Poland Spring bottles. And this really was our way of 
providing content about the full journey of the bottle from the spring to the way we care for the water, but really hitting hard on the journey is not over when the bottle is empty. Um, talking about the importance of recycling, what happens if you don't recycle, giving access to local recycling information so people could learn about recycling near them, and then, of course, letting them know um, our intents and commitments about shifting to recycled plastics. The Ashton Organization, based in London, is a network of innovators and pioneers, business supporters and financiers who have a common mission, find and support organizations taking action to solve the climate crisis. Its annual awards, established in 2001, were originally focused on identifying innovations in green energy, ones that are economically inclusive. Now they encompass a broader range of climate solutions. Here to talk about the long list of finalists for this year's competition is Ashton CEO, Harriet Lamb. Harriet, welcome to Green Biz 350. Fantastic to be with you. So, okay, got to ask, there are many awards competitions focused on climate-related startups. What makes the Ashton Awards unique? Oh, well, I think we need all the different awards. Let's face it, we're up against it if we're going to tackle climate change. So we would welcome all the different awards around the world, each of which has got its own angle to put spotlight on. Ashton was founded over 20 years ago now, and what we're always looking for are examples of people who are doing really interesting innovations and they're taking people along with them. So it's not just about the latest shiny tech, it's also about the business model that lies behind it. Projects work that are fair, that are inclusive, and that are really contributing to a just transition. So as we move away from carbon, we're also tackling inequality. We've got a pretty rigorous judging process, and we're gearing up now to go into that next week. With I think we'll be uh, locked away for about 20 hours going through the different amazing applications we've received this year with real technical expert judges as well as people who are experts on that social inclusivity side. And I think that's why a national award is seen as a stamp of approval. It does really help organizations when they're then going out to raise capital or to raise awareness about their idea. And I think finally, winning an Ashton Award is sort of part of being a longer journey with Ashton. And we keep in touch and work with our alumni all around the world. And they often go on to, you know, greater and greater success. And one of them is repowering a community energy scheme in London, who's then gone on to do blockchain with community energy. And I think blockchain's a special interest of yours. Am I not right, Heather? <laughs> yes, that's another topic for another day. Um, but th okay, so this year's comp contest includes 11 categories. That's a lot. One of the solution types that you sought to highlight uh, this year was related to cooling. So why that focus? And tell me a little bit about the four finalists. Yes, well, we one of the sort of areas that's really coming up the global agenda is concern about cooling because we're all caught in a vicious cycle. As the world gets hotter and temperatures go up, people will rack up the air conditioning more, which contributes to global warming more. So we're really trapped. 
And so it's becoming more and more important that we all put our brightest and our best brains to thinking what are other answers to tackling global warming? What are other things that we could be doing that help us move away from air conditioning, in fact? And so we got four amazing finalists. I don't know how we're going to decide this year. So to give you one idea, Fair Conditioning, I love that name, uh, from India. They're an amazing uh, group of academics, actually, looking at how do we ensure that India's university architecture courses really promote cutting-edge sustainable design and cooling methods and move away from the current thinking, which is, well, just teach the students how to do air conditioning as default. So they're one type of initiative that's up there on the long list. Another one is an amazing architectural company run by a woman in Egypt called EcoConsult. And she's worked with a major agricultural company that grows crops actually in the desert. And normally the workers have terrible conditions and it's extremely hot. And so she's worked with them to design one of the first real green villages where the workers not only uh, have much improved accommodation, but that it is also really green. And it's by using sort of passive house design that they can let the cool air come in and make it a really wonderful place to live. For example, they've got heat heat reflecting roofs to help keep temperatures down for the workers. Two other ones, another one from India is the Ahmedabad Heat Action Plan. And that's really about the local government who's put in place a comprehensive range of measures to keep residents safe when the temperature gauge goes up to 50 degrees and above. And so they've really mapped the high-risk area, the vulnerable people, and they're helping to reach them with warnings, advice, distribute water and coordinate health care. And another the final example is the German Red Cross and the Vietnamese Red Cross who've come together using weather forecasting data to trigger a prearranged action plan so that when they know a heat wave is coming before the emergency hits, they're ready to support slum residents and people who are working outdoors, the really most vulnerable who get hit the most when the temperatures hit those terrible heights. So those are the four incredible finalists, and I don't know how we're going to decide. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. I, I, I do. I actually really uh, I like the, the focus on both private and public partnerships, too, right? That seems to be core to, to what you're doing as well. I think that's really right, Heather, that we, it's, it, because that's what we need. We need the public sector coming behind it, as well as the private sector, as well, of course, as, as NGOs and civil society. So I think it needs that spread. And as you say, each time I read one of the finalists, I think, oh, they're amazing. And then I read the next one, I think, oh, no, they're amazing, too. <laughs> okay. So that's the difficulty of having awards. <laughs> okay, so you do have a, a couple of new awards this year. One of them is for humanitarian energy, and one is for natural climate solutions. So why are these, why are these important? Well, sadly, as you know, the global refugee population is rising. And to be honest, in the future, those numbers will only continue to rise as more and more people get displaced, not just by conflict, but also then by climate change. 
So today there's over 70 million people globally who are either refugees overseas or internally displaced within their own countries. And obviously they face multiple challenges, but one of them is access to energy. And so we felt it was really time to put a spotlight on the exciting new initiatives that are going on to help refugees and internally displaced people have better access to sustainable energy. Because otherwise, often they're trapped either into using terribly polluting uh, cook stoves with kerosene or diesel, having to pay very high amounts, sometimes to sort of gangs who control fueling camps, or they're having to walk for miles and miles and cutting down the local forest, which adds, adds to the tension with the host community. So there's an absolutely critical role to be played here by sustainable energy initiatives. And we were looking in particular for initiatives that really also involve the refugee communities or the host government, going back to that idea about involving the public sector as well. And so once again, we've got four amazing initiatives. For example, one of them is Gaia. They're working in Ethiopia where there are refugees from Sudan and South Sudan and working on a scheme to make sure that the host community can sell grass that's nearby, which is then made into briquettes, which can then be used on stoves that are again made locally by the refugee cooperatives. So there's other initiatives that are about solar heating systems that people are putting on their roofs. Again, in that case, that's within Jordan, involving the government of Jordan. There are initiatives about networks of solar systems to really help deliver energy at scale to refugee camps. So an absolute host of very exciting initiatives. And, you know, because it was new this year, we really weren't sure. We thought, well, will we get the applications that we need? And I can tell you, we were absolutely overwhelmed. We had applications from Afghanistan to Haiti, from Sudan to South Sudan, Syria, Jordan, Yemen, Really inspiring to see what people who are actually living in the worst conditions in the world are nonetheless still doing to tackle sustainable energy. And that was just specifically for the humanitarian ones? Exactly. Wow. And that one was okay. specifically for humanitarian. We were really blown away. But then the natural climate solutions, well, I think you know, that's something that's really shooting up the political agenda at last, isn't it? That people are really beginning to realize that, in fact, we need to be using much more of the solutions within nature itself. And, of course, above all else, the people who've known that all along are the indigenous communities often living in the forests. And so we really targeted that award on those people, on those communities who know the best about how to preserve the forest and how to help nature itself help us cope with the mess we've created. And so just to give you one example, uh, there's one of the applications is from an indigenous community in Brazil, a tiny community, only 1,200 people left in that community. But they really know how to preserve their local forest. And actually, in a really interesting tie up, they've been selling a native agricultural product called anato, which is a, a local plant that has a red dye. And they've been selling that to Aveda, the cosmetics company, as one way to earn an income that helps them live still in harmony with the forest. And that's just one of the organizations that are on that long list. So that, that brings me to my final question, the Aveda tie-in there. How can large companies support organizations like your finalists more effectively? 
I think sometimes it is exactly about having those links directly with the communities and helping support them in their initiatives, perhaps buying from them, perhaps integrating them into supply chains and making sure it's always done in a way that's paying a fair price and enabling those communities to preserve their environment and positively tackle climate change. But of course, all companies and all of us, everybody needs to be looking at how can we have a plan to get to net zero? What is it that we can all do? And that means looking right through every action that each one of us takes. And it can also be that companies might like to invest in some of these amazing pioneers who've got really interesting ideas. They're always at the second stage. They're never new. They're never just pilots if you're applying for a national award. You've always proved that it can work. But sometimes you're looking for capital to take it to that next stage to really get the big breakthroughs, to take it to scale or to replicate it. And that, of course, is a critical role that companies can play being ready to take a little bit more risk than normally, but to invest in these pioneers who are showing the way forward. We'd also always, of course, love to work with companies. They could be one of our judges, to be a knowledge partner, or perhaps indeed to sponsor an award. We're always looking for companies who'd like to get behind this search for the world's brightest and best pioneers. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We now publish six every week, including the new Food Weekly. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. And we'd love to find out more about you. You can send us email at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>